Are you a travel nurse or planning a long-term vacation? Finding housing can be one of the most stressful parts of your journey. But don't worry, Furnished Finder has you covered. With thousands of furnished properties across the U.S., from one-bedroom studios to three-bedroom family homes, you can find the perfect place to call home. Not only does Furnish Finder provide you with a wide range of options to choose from, but they also make sure that each property meets their high standards of cleanliness and safety. Travel with a peace of mind and find your home away from home with Furnished Finder. Visit Furnished Finder today to start your search. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Cup of Nurses podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you guys visit cupofnurses.com for any of our updates. We have a lot of nursing information on there, a lot of information for nursing students. You can also visit cupofnurses.shop for all of our latest merch releases. We also have our unit shirts on there as well. And if you check out our resource page, we have a lot of nursing cheat sheets, some stuff that might help you out on a unit, or it might even help you out in nursing school, or just increase your knowledge in nursing. Maybe you could reflect on some of the stuff that maybe you haven't seen in a while, but lots of good information on there as well, guys. That's couplenurses.com. Also, a shout out to our sponsors, Liquid IV and BetterHelp. I drink Liquid IV every day after every sauna session. It's summer, guys, so if you're going to the beach, make sure you guys grab some Liquid IV to stay hydrated out there. Use code CONPOD at checkout for a little bit of a discount. And it's never too early, never too late to get a therapy session in, guys. Your mental health matters. Visit betterhelp.com slash nurses or use code nurses at checkout for a little bit of a discount for your therapy session. So on this episode, I want to talk about some ethical dilemmas we sometimes face in nursing. And if you haven't faced a lot of ethical dilemmas or maybe haven't really thought about them or haven't really been getting involved in them, today we're going to just brainstorm and just think about these ethical dilemmas. I have had a few ethical dilemmas in nursing myself. I'm going to try and reflect on some of the ones that I, that I had that relate to some of the uh, main categories that I want to hit today. So the first one I want to talk about is one that has to do with autonomy versus beneficence. So I'm going to read you guys a scenario. The scenario goes, a pregnant patient with a life-threatening medical condition insists on continuing with a treatment that poses serious risks to her and her unborn child. The medical team believes that the treatment should be postponed until after childbirth to maximize chances of survival for both. But the patient is adamant about proceeding with the treatment. How can the nurse respect the patient's autonomy while also ensuring the best outcome for both the patient and her baby? So this one's a little bit tricky because this one has to deal with the mother's health versus the unborn baby's health versus their combined health. So in this scenario, it seems like the mother wants to continue the treatment that she has been on or is new to, to maybe better her life or increase her chance of survival. Maybe she's battling some kind of a cancer. Scenario doesn't specify, but this treatment is going to help the mom, but not necessarily help the baby. It could harm the baby because we know when you have an unborn child, when you're pregnant, lots of medications are very dangerous. Even some common medications like Tylenol, aspirin, those are some common over-the-counter medications that we normally take. 
those can pose a risk on an unborn child because they're not fully developed. They don't have a, they don't have fully functioning organs that can filter the blood, all that kind of stuff, and they relied on the mom and any kind of change, any kind of additives, any differentiation from the homeostasis and environment of the fetus and what the newborn likes, that's going to always cause some, some issues. This one's a little tricky. So personally, I would go for trying to have the baby be as healthy as possible. So this one's really, really tough because the treatment might hurt the baby and it might help the mom or it might help the mom and then maybe not do much to the baby. This, I'd probably go more on statistics that let's just say the mom really needs this treatment to help her, let's just say, survive because ultimately if you help her survive, you're increasing the likelihood of the baby also surviving. But then there's also scenarios of where you're helping the mom survive, but then you're poisoning the fetus. So I'd have to know a little bit more about this, but ultimately I would always go towards whatever preserves the preserves the newborn or the soon to be born child's life. So for me, this decision, I would maybe try to focus on the baby and try to get that outcome to be as ideal as possible, especially if you could hold off the treatment for the mom for a few trimesters, a few months, maybe a year. If it's life-saving treatment, obviously I'd have to go with saving the mom's life because if you don't save the mom's life, you're most likely not going to save the, the baby's life, right? Unless it's like a trauma incident where the mom is hemorrhaging and we have to get that baby out and it's like one of those where if we don't take out the baby, then they're both going going to die. Those kind of situations are a little bit more more urgent, but this one is more like ethical thing where the mom is seeking treatment, but that treatment could also harm the baby a little bit. So in my opinion, I would try to see if this treatment can be held off for a little bit of time till after birth. And then once the baby is born, then we can maybe start the medication a, a week after that. So that's my opinion is hold out the treatment if possible, or if the treatment doesn't pose a big risk to the unborn baby, then I would say go ahead with the treatment. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This next scenario has to do with end-of-life care. So the scenario goes, a patient's advanced directive states they do not want to be kept on life support if they become terminally ill. However, the patient's family disagrees with this decision and insists on pursuing all available life-sustaining treatment. 
The patient is unable to communicate due to their condition. How can the nurse advocate for the patient's end-of-life wishes while balancing the family desires and emotions? So I want to say I've had a handful of run-ins with this end-of-life dilemmas. There's been a handful of times where a patient comes in intubated because maybe they have a heart attack on the spot or a stroke on the spot in the environment, and nobody, of course, knows what their wishes are. So they save the patient's life. You could say, put them on a ventilator and bring them to the hospital. And then when they come to the hospital, it comes to be known that the patient did not want to be resuscitated if they were to lose their, their heart rate or their heartbeat. But in this situation, a patient is now alive. Maybe they're not on any kind of pressures, but they're intubated. So basically, they're almost on life support. Maybe sedated, ventilated, and now we have the patient's family coming in. So what happens lots of times is us bringing in the patient, you could say, back to life. The family's thoughts are, okay, my family member wanted to not be resuscitated, but they did get resuscitated, so now they're here technically alive. So this is really tricky because your loved one did not want to get resuscitated. They did not want to get put on life support, but here they are on life support, and they're technically alive. So now it becomes a battle of, you could say, morals and of wishes because the family might have been okay with them not being resuscitated, but the fact that they're, they have already been resuscitated, that changes it a lot because they're technically alive. So usually what I do is... I sit down with first my manager, maybe the physicians or the the social, um, the, the person that does like the, uh, the the social stuff that communicates between the family, all that kind of stuff. I forgot what the name of the, the, the person was, but they're the social worker. I'm sorry, the social worker. And if the family is having a hard time deciding, I usually speak to doctors, the manager, and all those people that help collaborate and contribute to the decision and usually what the end result is is somebody goes in and they first focus on a patient they ask what are the kind of the patient want and if the family knows that the patient wanted to not be resuscitated but but here they are there's a few things we could do because saying shut everything off right away might not be something that they really want to do or think about. You want to maybe ease into it slowly. If they're really having a hard time grasping it, it's always good to just say, hey, you know, let's leave them on here for 24 hours, see what happens. But then again, that is like a flip of a coin because then sometimes what happens is, okay, I've been having my loved one on life support for the last 24 hours. What's another day? What's another three days? Let's try a week. Lots of times it gets pushed further and further and further. And sometimes this addition of time makes the decision even harder. So it's always good to lay out all the options, but try to always make it time focused. You want to always emphasize that the longer they are on life support, the harder it is for them to go back to their normal. And it's also harder for us to figure out their actual neurological status because they're sedated and intubated, right? So we're doing almost everything for them in a sense. So we're not sure if they're having a stroke under sedation, those sedation, all that kind of stuff. But 
it's still hard to tell. People process the sedation a little bit differently. So sometimes it takes a little bit longer for them to wake up. You always want to just figure out what the patient wanted, what the family wants, and what they're thinking. And you want to support and facilitate their decision in the most educated way. And I always like to focus on the patient because you have to ultimately go with what the patient wanted, even though it's really hard for a family to do that. But you always want to have the focus on the patient because with the families, you're going to disagreements. They got to figure that stuff out. You always want to present the information in an educated way where it's non-biased, but patient-focused because the family doesn't see what happens in a hospital, what happens with prolonged intubation, what happens when people go from a vent to a trach to a nursing home. That stuff is not really aware to the public eye. You have that the knowledge of what can happen. So that's why I always say patient focus, patient focus. And it's never the wrong decision if they go with what their loved one wants because if they pass away, they pass away. It, it, it happened. It is what it is. That's what the patient wanted. But what really sucks is if the family decides to keep them intubated pro prolongly and then they get tricked, they get sent to nursing home and then sometimes the family even feels even worse because now they're technically off the ventilator. They're somewhat there. So right now, it's even harder to say goodbye because more of them is there technically than there was when they were sedated, intubated on all those kind of medications because they're more present in a way but you don't know what they are neurologically but they're technically more alive in a sense versus what they were. So that makes the decision even harder. So with this one, I always want to focus on the patient's wishes and always let the family know that if they do decide to go with the patient wishes, that is never going to be the wrong answer. The next scenario has to do with resource allocation. So the scenario goes, a hospital is dealing with a surge of patients and there is a shortage of ventilators in the intensive care unit. Nurses must decide which patient should receive the limited number of ventilators, knowing that some patients may not survive without this life-saving equipment. Additionally, some patients may have pre-existing health conditions that put them at higher risk for severe complications. So with this scenario, you guys might have seen a couple years ago with the whole widespread infection, all that kind of stuff, some places had a shortage of ventilators. So this is a very tough thing to do but when it comes down to resource allocation I'd have to just go with the numbers blatantly I have to go objectively because if you start thinking about it too much too much of emotions go into it it becomes too subjective so when it comes to resource allocation I would say just go by a number do the math try to save as much people as possible by that, I mean the people that have the highest chance of getting off the ventilator, ventilator, the people that have the highest chance of surviving the intubation, surviving the whole cascade of problems that they have going on is put those people on the ventilator first because they have the highest chance of survival. For example, if you have a 40-year-old healthy patient that just has to go on, a, go on the ventilator because they're having some bacterial infection in their lungs or viral infection in their lungs where they 
need a temporary ventilator versus the 75-year-old patient that's going with, with pneumonia on top of this virus that's happening or whatever else is happening, right? So that's the way I think we should we should go about things is just look at it from a statistical standpoint because if you get too detailed and become too subjective, too emotionally, become too emotionally invested into it, that becomes a really, really hard thing to do because now you're looking at not just the patient, you look at the family. This person has kids. This person doesn't have, doesn't have kids. This person has has a wife. This guy's divorced. He's making this much money. They're making this much money. There's so much data coming in. So this has to be just done from a very, very, very objective standpoint. And just whoever can survive, whoever has the highest chance of survival, I would say allocate the the equipment for that population. The next scenario has to do with confidentiality and privacy. This one, I'm sure many people can relate to at at some point. And if it's not in the hospital, then maybe in their personal personal lives. So the scenario goes, a nurse discovers that a prominent public figure has been admitted to the hospital for a sensitive medical issue. The nurse faces pressure from the media and public to disclose the patient's condition, but doing so would breach patient confidentiality. How can the nurse uphold patient privacy and confidentiality in the face of external pressures? So this is an interesting scenario because this specific one I've not personally dealt with, but when I used to work in Santa Monica, it was a more prominent hospital that some famous people go to. They've, they've been there and some of the nurses that have been working there for years, they told me a handful of scenarios where there'd be somebody famous in there, maybe it was for surgery, or there was a few times where they would be admitted to the psych unit, and the patients were, were famous. So they told me that when they came out of work, there were uh, was news stations there, and there would be reporters coming up, coming up to nurses and asking, hey, have you dealt with this patient? Is this patient here? Is it true that so-and-so was here? What's going on? And the nurses actually told me a really good thing to say if that happens to you, and that's basically, don't disclose that they're that they're there. Don't say that yeah they're here, but I don't know anything about them because technically then you're still giving away information. All you have to say is you're not sure. You just work on your unit, and you're not sure where the patients are around. So try to be, try to not give out any kind of information because even saying that yeah they're there, but I haven't worked with them, I can't answer any of your questions. You're already giving them some kind of, of information. You're telling, telling them that the patient is there. So when it comes to somebody famous being in the hospital, just try and disregard it as you don't know if, if they're there and you, you don't know why they're there, so so on and, and, and so forth. That kind of stuff. Just be as vague as possible. Just don't give any kind of hints to, to, to anything. But with this whole privacy and confidentiality thing, what has happened to me handful of times and this is a little bit of a more popular scenario is when there is a patient in the hospital and you have family calling that maybe don't know the password or aren't on the list technically you can't give them any kind of information and this is a little tricky because when some nurses are asked if this patient is, is here and they ask for a password and the and the uh that's calling doesn't doesn't know the information. Sometimes they go back and say that we're not even sure this patient is here or something like that. Or sometimes they don't even even disclose 
that there are there because sometimes I've, well, let's say I had this one time where I had a person in the hospital and this person said that the people that I want calling me, they're going to call and they're going to tell you the password first. And if they don't tell you the password first, then don't even tell them that I'm here. Which basically means that a person would call and they would say, hey, Stephen Smith is, is here, password is Lily's. And that's when I knew that, hey, okay, this person I talk to versus like somebody else calling that would be like, hey, is so-and-so here? I'd be like, I'm not sure. I could look more of that into you. Do they maybe have a password? Maybe I could find them with a password if you have their password. I'm like, no, I don't, no one told me about a password. And I could be like, I'm not sure if, if that if that patient the patient is there. Can you maybe call a family and maybe give them the password? That kind of stuff. You kind of try to beat around the bush. You're not giving away any kind of information because the patient made it specifically clear that when someone's going to call the unit, they're going to introduce themselves and they're going to ask you there and also give the password. So I already knew that this person didn't give me the password off the bat because that's what they were told to do. And then when I asked again, if they could give me some clues that I could help find them, they didn't know it either. So I, at that point I had to say that I'm not sure if he's there, I'm sorry. Maybe you could call another family member, maybe they're at, the, they're at a different hospital. So you have to kind of play around with this because sometimes a patient might tell you, hey, whoever calls, just give them all the information. And then whenever everybody calls, you give them all, all the information. But if a patient usually tells me that to tell anybody who calls the information, usually I'm a little bit still hesitant. I'm like, maybe you just set up a password just in case somebody calls that maybe you don't want knowing their information, maybe your boss or something like that. And then that makes them think twice because they may first think about just their primary family or they're going to call. Just let them, let them know whatever they want to know. But I want to also let them know that, hey, anybody could call. And if you tell me that I could give anybody this information, then I'm going to give anybody this information. So let me at least have you understand what that really means and give you like a second option just in case because you never know. A coworker might call because you, you really, you're not really thinking about your coworkers or your boss or your manager when you're in the hospital, right? You're thinking more of your family because that's your main concern. And if you tell them that, hey, but if your boss calls, I'll, I'll tell them. So then it makes them think think twice or it's like, okay, maybe I will just give you a password, okay? And so on and, and, and so forth. Or they could say, if somebody calls, can you come back and tell me who's calling and so on and so forth. So that's how I like to deal with that privacy and confidentiality ethical dilemma. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another dilemma that I'm going to pose for y'all is the good old informed consent dilemma. The scenario goes, a patient is admitted to the hospital with a life-threatening condition and urgent surgery is recommended. However, the patient is in a state of confusion 
and is unable to provide informed consent, the patient's family is unavailable, and the medical team must make a rapid decision. How can the nurse ensure the patient's best interests are served while acting in the patient's best interest under emergent circumstances? So this one is really, really tough, and I'm glad the ER is posed with with making that call oftentimes first is the ICU because if you go along with the surgery, you get sued. If you don't go along with the surgery and the patient dies, you get sued. So this becomes very, very murky waters, but in healthcare and I believe in, in law, I have to do a little bit more research on this, but there's the Good Samaritan law. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that Good Samaritan law is about people that maybe are down in, in, in the environment, not necessarily in a hospital, but ethically wise and morally wise, personally, I'd have to say, go with the with the surgery. If the patient is about to die and you don't perform surgery, I'd have to go with, do the surgery because if you don't do anything now, they're gonna die regardless. But if you do the surgery, yeah, they might die in surgery, but they also might survive. So this one's very difficult, but if family cannot be reached, I would try to put it off as long as possible. And if it's just either now or never kind of situation, I would say just go with, with the surgery because this gives the patient technically the highest chance of survival so they can make their future decision. I don't think I don't think people or hospitals could get sued for, for, the, for that kind of a stuff, but you never know unless for some reason there, somebody missed their advanced directives. Maybe they haven't looked in the system properly, but hospitals usually usually have those documentations fairly handy, especially if that patient has been in the hospital before. But for this one, I'd say ethically and morally, I would have to decide to give this this patient surgery. The next one is cultural and religious beliefs. The scenario goes, a young patient's parents belong to a religious group that rejects modern medical interventions. The child has a treatable condition, but the parents insist on using only prayer and faith based remedies. The medical team believes the child's life could be saved with medical intervention. How can the nurse navigate this ethically challenging situation that involves potentially life-saving medication and treatment and respecting the parents' religious beliefs? So this one is super tricky. If he's 18 or above, I would say have the kid make help make the decision, but this is child, right? So I'm guessing they're under the age of of 18. This is actually interesting because I remember having a scenario just like this one, but I'm trying to remember how the, how it resulted or what the outcome was, because we had a situation where there was a patient, but they had, but they had to be above the age of 18 if, if I had them. So maybe not this exact example, but we had a scenario where the patient and a family had a specific religious belief where they couldn't do do certain things. It wasn't the Jehovah's Witness stuff. It was it was something else where they weren't allowed to do something or, or move something from one place to another. I'm not sure what the exact details were, but there was this this issue where the patient was debating on whether having this, and the family was pretty adamant about not doing this, no matter what the result was. But they were still thinking about just going with the whatever treatment he had to do because when it comes to 
having your child face potential death, your views start to change a little bit, even when it comes to, to religion. Meaning that religion, lots of times, is all, is all good when things are good in a sense. But when you're faced with a dilemma like that, where it's like, okay, my son is going through this and if we don't go against our religious beliefs, then he's going to die. But if we do stay with our religious beliefs, technically we're acting in sin or against against God in, in a sense. So I want to say what happened with that situation was the family did consent to the, the treatment. So the, the, the patient, after a long, long discussion, um, they had to talk to their, I'm not sure it was a priest or whoever, whoever the um, the higher person was that was closer to God, I'm not sure it was a priest, a pastor, whatever, a rabbi, I'm not sure what religion, religion they were, but they had a discussion with them and they ended up going with the surgery and the patient was, was fine. Hopefully he's, he's doing well now. But, but when it comes to that kind of stuff, when it comes to life and death, and when you're older and you're an adult, I want to say probably maybe 70s, 80s, it's a little bit easier for you to cope with death and it's a little bit easier to make the decision of okay i'm religious i'm seven years old i live my life i'm not going to do surgery it goes against my religious beliefs so on and so forth i live a good life i'm okay with not doing the surgery versus when it's your son when it's your daughter they're younger 20s 30s 40s you understand what you did when you were that young when you're that age so it's a lot harder for you to tell your son, no, you can't have this because it's against our religion. Because you understand how much more life they have to live. So lots of times when it comes to life or death and medical decisions, lots of times the medical decisions that are going to prolong the life usually outweigh the religious religious beliefs. I know that sometimes we, I know one time we had a Jehovah's Witness that also had sickle cell and we were recommending blood transfusions, but they didn't want to do it. They said to stick it out, and they did stick it out. The patient again, you have blood, tra- blood transfusion. In that situation, I understand. You know, you're going to go through a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, but you're mostly going to survive that 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 sickle cell. You could say, I want to, I don't want to say outbreak, but that sickle cell coming into into um into basically like your body. You're going through the whole sickle cell process right so that's a little bit understandable but when it comes to life or death like if you don't do this you're gonna die people are more likely to flip a little bit and go ahead with the with, with the surgery or with the with the treatment the next scenario has to do with refusal of treatment and i'm not talking about the refusal of a patient not wanting to take their insulin or not wanting to take their blood pressure medication this basic kind of stuff i'm talking a little bit about a more intense situation so the scenario goes an adult patient with a severe psychiatric condition refuses to take essential medications, which have previously been effective in managing their symptoms. The patient's condition worsens significantly and they pose a danger to themselves and others. The patient's refusal raises ethical concerns as they are unable to make rational decisions in their current state. How can the nurse balance respecting the patient's autonomy with ensuring their safety and well-being? So. I want to say last year, 
I had a patient that came in with psych issues and they were not taking their psych medication and they wanted to leave the hospital, but they were not with it enough to leave the hospital. So what we did was we tried to delay them from leaving, you know, ask them why they want to leave, trying to explain the benefits and negatives of them staying, the negatives of them leaving, that kind of stuff. And that works for a little bit, but it's not going to make them stay for a couple of days. You might have them stay overnight, you know, discuss it in the morning, just rest, so on and so forth. So you could convince them for a little bit the night, but then the next morning comes and they're back at it. They're adamant they want to leave, but they don't know what's going on. They're having some psychological outbreak. They don't know what's going on. They're being incoherent. My thing is if they can make their decision on a educated decision of where they send, they sign themselves out AMA and we could say they're doing it with them understanding because some people are going to be stubborn and they're not going to care. They just want to leave AMA, let them leave AMA. Sometimes people that seek drugs leave AMA. They're technically with it. We know why they're there. Just let them leave. So if the patient is there and understands, even though we know nothing good is going to come out of them leaving, they're humans. They can make their own decisions and you have to respect their decision. So if they're able to coherently decide to leave, let them leave AMA. But now if they're posing a danger to the staff, which means they, they're shouting, they're throwing things, they're pushing nurses, that causes for some IV or IM held off, right? Then we got to put them down, unfortunately. And at that point, we're not going to let them leave the hospital. So we're going to need to medically restrain them or physically restrain them because now they're being dangerous. They're, they're posing a danger. So we call security, give them some Haldol, give give them some medication because you have to call them down because if they're going at like a rage, there's no being able to talk to them. You're risking too much. A nurse could get hit, could get stabbed, could get knocked out, people could get hurt. A CNA could get hurt, a doctor could get hurt, anybody in the, in the unit could get hurt. So once they become violent, then that enters a whole different situation, all this scenario, it's time for us to de-escalate the situation it almost, I want to say, in any means necessary because they're obviously not understanding what's going on and they're not behaving like, I want to say, a normal person. So in this situation, if they're having some kind of psychiatric outbreak and they're posing a risk to somebody, we got to we got to put them down, guys. We got to put them down. But if they're with it, they can make their own decision, they're just frustrated and they're just stubborn and they're angry, they're upset, but they're with it, just have them sign the paperwork, go on wait, have them do their drugs. If they are pronounced on the scene, bring them back, they come back, stay ventilated, it's their own decision. You know, you can't hold everyone's hand through life and if they're with it, let them make decision even though even though you know that the consequences are going to be severe by them signing themselves out aiming. If they're being violent, non-coherent, keep them in the hospital. Posing a risk, keep them in. If they're with it, bye-bye, AMA. The next one has to do with whistleblowing. I know there's a lot of whistleblowers going on with the government, but you don't really hear too much whistleblowing in healthcare and medicine. You might hear some whistleblowing in the pharmaceutical industry. It's a little bit more common now, but this is going to be a little bit more, more nursing related. So a nurse working in a prestigious hospital discovers 
that some physicians and surgeons are engaging in unethical practices to manipulate patient data, including falsifying medical records and test results. The purpose of these actions is to move certain patients higher up on these transplant lists and make them appear more eligible for specific surgeries, even when other patients may have a more urgent medical need. The nurse is deeply troubled by these manipulations as they compromise the integrity of patient care, prioritize certain individuals over others unfairly, and potentially put lives at risk. However, the nurse fears the repercussions of reporting this misconduct, knowing that the involved physicians are influential within the hospital and may have strong connections with hospital administrators. So this is tricky. So the thing that makes this a little bit interesting is that the nurse knows that things are being falsified. So there is some fake news going on. There's some falsifications of records because there's a difference, I want to say, between falsifying records and optimizing patients. For example, if the patient, let's just say, is not on any inotropes and you're writing down that the patient is on inotropes, you're saying that, that the patient is eligible in certain ways because these are the labs, but the labs aren't really showing that. That's bad because then you're just being, you're just straight falsifying things. But when it comes to optimizing patients, when you do, I want to say, certain tests that you know are going to qualify them for these surgeries, even though all the lab results have to be done as well, but you know by doing these, it's going to put them up higher in the transplant list or maybe putting them on five of a inotrope versus a 2.5 of an inotrope. You know, even though you know that they technically don't need that five, but they do need they do need that 2.5 and it's only a matter of time until it goes from 2.5 to five, but you're just putting it a little bit quicker. Then optimizing, I don't wanna I I wanna say I don't really have an issue with because certain criteria have to be met to be put on a transplant list the higher you are on the list the better chance of you getting an organ so there's a difference between optimizing and falsifying if you're falsifying because you like this person you know this person that's unethical but if you're optimizing things then that's not really a huge issue because they're going to get to that point sooner or later and we understand that the more time goes by the longer you wait the worse things are and the harder it is for you to kind of bounce back or the harder it is for you to have a successful surgery because, for example, waiting seven years on a transplant list versus waiting two years on a transplant list versus waiting two months on a transplant list, your survival rate gets a lot greater. Same thing with surgeries. If we know you're going to qualify for an LVAD in five years, because just the way your prognosis is, we've seen this before, and we know that people that have your lab values now, the people that have the same symptoms you're having now, they usually get LVAD within the next five years. Sometimes you're thinking and you're like, okay, we know the cascade of heart failure. We know this patient is going to need an LVAD in five years, but we, we know that the earlier you get, earlier you get this LVAD, the longer you could say your heart is functioning at whatever shitty level it is now 
the greater chance you have of surviving surgery and greater chance of you having a happier and, and healthier life in a sense. So that's the thing. If you're falsifying records, that's no, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it, especially if it's somebody that you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you're optimizing patients to maybe put a little bit higher in the list, yeah, that kind of, that kind of sucks because technically they're going to get this organ before somebody else, but it's a little bit of a gray area. You know, it's a little bit of a little bit of a gray area because you know the cascade of things you been doing these surgeries for forever now, and you know the prognosis, you know the cascade of what's going to happen next, next, and you also know that the sooner you get this done, the better the outcome outcomes are. So, optimizing a little bit gray, but I I understand falsifying to no no. If stuff being falsified, that shouldn't be happening. I'm sorry. Maybe you wanna give this person an organ because you think you're going to save the world. You can't do that because you're lying. You know, you're falsifying it versus optimizing, guys. I know a little bit of gray area. Maybe you guys have some scenarios that, that you that you maybe see as a gray area, but big difference between lying and optimizing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Next scenario is a conflict of interest scenario. A nurse working in a pharmaceutical company is asked to participate in a research study evaluating a medication produced by the company. The nurse is aware that the medication has potential serious side effects that are not adequately disclosed to study participants. How can the nurse navigate the conflict between professional obligations and company interest? Professional obligation versus company interest. If you say it like that, professional liability, my professional environment, my professional stance, me being a nurse, I personally have to disclose the consequences. I'm not particularly a big fan of Big Pharma, but I do understand how much benefit Big Pharma has given to us over the last years, ever since its creation. It has increased the life expectancy of people. It has helped millions, if not billions of people in this world, Big Pharma, I give it credit for what credit is due, but there's also a side of Big Pharma where it's profits over people. And if I am going to have to decide over my professional obligation versus the company interests, I'm going to go with my professional obligation because the business is always going to have its business in mind. Think of business as a person. That person is always going to have its back, is never going to think about you because if you are not able to bring this business money, it's not going to care. When it is ever a situation of moral principle, fresh obligation, and ethical obligation versus your boss, versus your manager, versus the people around you, versus companies, businesses, congressman, anybody, anything, always go with your morals and your values because 
that is going to hurt you the most out of anything else. You're always going to think about that. You might lose some money. Money is from transactional. It could be made, it could be lost. But just that moral virtue of you not doing what you knew was right, that's what usually eats people inside. But we know there's lobbyists in, in this world. I know it's not exactly with lobbyists. I'm just saying everybody has a number. I guarantee you if some medical company like Pfizer came up to you and say, hey, I know you know that. I know you know that this medication has side effects. I'll give you 100K if you don't say anything. We'll disclose the side effects at a later date, but if you don't say anything now, we'll give you 100K. We should have our number. We should have our number. If somebody came up to you with a million dollars, people would, you'd probably close your mouth. I might even close, close my mouth if someone offers me a million dollars if I just don't say anything about this because that million dollars, it's a lot of money, especially if you don't got to pay taxes on it and you get a clean million. That's a big number. Lots of times people will give up their morality for a million dollars, at least a part of their morality. Keep in mind that I believe the average bribe to a congressperson, or I don't want to say bribe, but average donation to a congressperson is $10,000. And lots of times they take that 10K and they vote on a bill a certain way because they got that, that 10K. But when it comes to your morals, your values, try to always go with those. Sometimes you can bend them a little bit. Sometimes this value supersedes this one and this one you're able to maybe not always follow through on when it comes to relationships, all that kind of stuff. But try to always go with your values and your morals. And the last ethical dilemma I want to go over with you all is social media and privacy. A nurse posts a photo on social media inadvertently capturing a patient's face in the background. Despite not, not identifying the patient by name, the post leads to the patient's identity being revealed in the comment section, breaching their privacy. How can the nurse address the inadvertent violation of the patient's privacy and take appropriate measures to rectify the situation? So this sucks. First of all, don't be taking pictures in your patients. I had an issue with this one time myself. I didn't take a picture of a patient or anything like that, but situation was... I sent a Purewick as a joke to one of my nursing friends and we posted on social media as a joke, as a joke, but somebody got upset on day shift. It was a night shift or a day shift kind of thing. And since it was a social media, we got in trouble from our, our manager. Not that big of a deal. At least I don't think it was a big of a deal, but they made it a big, a big deal. So I can only imagine how big of a deal it would be if a patient's face was in a picture and then the patient's name got exposed. That's a big no-no. That's probably going to have some repercussions. This is why I always say, don't don't take pictures or videos in your patients. Don't ever do that because you never know. You might just get a sighting of someone's face by accident and they're going to to know. Maybe you catch a tattoo on someone's ankle and pop. They're in dairy, know who it is. So try to keep social media out of the unit as much as possible. I've even heard of nurses that were throwing a unit party and they posted some stuff on social media just with, with them on the unit, um, not doing anything bad, just having fun. Nothing crazy was done and they got fired for it. So always keep that in mind that whatever you post, everyone sees, I understand, but this is the world that we live in. Maybe in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, it might line up a little bit, but any kind of post 
end unit in the hospital can get you into some hot water and some consequences because it's just that private. You want to maintain as private of an environment in the hospital as, as, as we can. And social media obviously breaks that, that privacy. So don't post any pictures near patients, near any kind of identifiers. I know, um, like a broken record here. I'm sure you've heard it from managers. I'm sure you heard it in nursing school, all that kind of stuff. But if you're going to do some social media stuff, just be careful because like I said, I know some nurses, a half nurses on one unit that got fired just for posting some unit party stuff on there. They were not doing anything inappropriate, but by you posting on social media, I'll be honest with you guys, if manager doesn't like you, just by you posting stuff on social media, other unit, that kind of stuff, they get you in hot water because technically you are making a violation of their privacy policy by recording stuff on the unit in the hospital. And I'm telling you, people could go after you just by you posting some random stupid thing with, with something that's funny, something that you maybe posted so maybe better so much education. That could even get you in trouble. So, like I said, social media and privacy do not go hand in hand together. They, they don't do well in the hospital and if somebody is out there to get you trust me if you make a social media post of you doing something in the hospital or you being in the hospital they come after you with that hands down thank you for tuning in guys thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed my little ethical dilemma talk here and if you have any kind of ethical dilemmas that you may be experienced go ahead and send me a dm on a couple of nurses on instagram drop a comment on on the video or on youtube thank you so much for for listening and guys once again get some liquid IV have a good one guys have a good weekend bye bye